Um, this is a word that was birthed in my, my writing of, I'm writing a new book on the, the topic of Jonah, the book of Jonah, allowing his story to, to help me tell other stories. A lot, a lot is crammed into four little chapters of Jonah. And if we're paying attention to the Lord Jesus, um, who says he's greater than Jonah, then there's, a, of course, a lot we can say. This is a message that has nothing to do with Jonah. Um, a lot of what's happening as I'm writing this, if you just took it out of the book and set it by itself, you, it would be tough to make a connection to Jonah. But I'm letting these little tributaries influence, or influence other stories. This is one of those stories because, and it was birthed because I was writing about Jonah being in the belly of the whale and Jonah doesn't pray the prayer we expect. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Um, I shouldn't have done this. Instead, he prays a prayer of thanksgiving. And in his prayer of thanksgiving, he gets delivered. And I went into that chapter thinking I knew something. And I've been writing in that chapter, learning something. And that something I'm learning is a little bit of what I want to talk to you about. It's something I've known, but I need refreshed on it. And that is, there's more than meets the eye. Um, there is always more going on behind the scenes than you see. So if you just watched a whale swim by, there's, there's something going on in his belly. There's Jonah in there. But deeper than that, Jonah's given a prayer of thanksgiving. I want Jonah to have a prayer of repentance. I want Jonah to suffer a little bit, just to be honest. But he's saying thank you, and God delivers him in the midst of his thanksgiving. And as I was writing, I just heard the voice of the Spirit saying, there's always more going on with me and my children than you know. There's more going on with, with your neighbor than you know. There's more going on with him and her and him and him. It, you see something, but you only see the surface. You don't see what people are going through. You don't feel their pain. You don't know their dreams. You don't know their hopes. You don't know the road they've been down. It's easy to make judgment calls based on what we see and based on what we hear. So this story that I want to share with you from the life of Jesus, and it won't look like we're in the life of Jesus because I want to start with Paul and I'll explain in a moment. This story is birthed out of one of those moments where I'm trying to dig into the life of Jesus to go, there's more than meets the eye. And I kind of work this sermon backwards because I really end up with, hey, let's don't judge our neighbor because there's more than meets the eye. Hey, let's, let's love the unlovable because there's more than meets the eye. Let's not... Uh, jump to conclusions because there's more than meets the eye. And, and as I work backwards towards Jesus and then through that story, um, I end up starting with the title. And that's a, a scripture we're going to pull from an alternate translation. But um, to get us there, I think we live in an era where we see more than we've ever been able to see before. And that's because of technology. Right now, there's a, um, a war of aggression in Eastern Europe. If this were 200 years ago, we probably wouldn't hear about that war until maybe later this week when the first newspapers that made their way across the landmass of Europe and then across the body of water of the Atlantic started to come to us. And we go, oh, look at this, way over there in Russia somewhere, they're fighting. And that was about all we would have thought about it. Maybe, <clears throat> maybe the White House would have had to deal with it, but our house wouldn't have had to deal with it. We don't live in that world. We live in a world where we do deal with it. In fact, because of Twitter, or Instagram, we deal with it instantly, or, or at least we're confronted with it. We're confronted with images, visuals, emotions, pleas, cries, prayers. And because of that instantaneous sight, we have an, a, the need for an instantaneous response. So we don't really have time to filter anything. We don't have time to hear both sides of the story. Who needs both sides of the story? You got one story. One story is all that matters. You got one story, make a judgment call. And that's kind of the world we live in. And we're all guilty of it. We all do it. We see something, boom. We immediately, I mean, over the course of the last two or three years, the average person became an epimediologist in a heartbeat. Everybody knew the answers to vaccines and drugs and viruses. Everybody knew what was going on, how to make, how to cure it, how to stop it, uh, what the next wave was. Everyone went from being a, you know, a day laborer to a genius in uh, vaccination. Um, and then we did it with political science, with Russia and the Ukraine, and we do it every election cycle, and we're all guilty of it. And I think it's because we have the visual, we have the emotion, there's no question about the emotion, and the passion, and the love, and the desire, and the hate, and all of that. But the visual brings it all to the surface, and then we do something with it, and then we have to deal with the consequences, or we don't. 
But then we've created that world, a lot of voices going out into the world. And we're better equipped to see than we've ever been before because we've got a window in our hand, a window to the world. And not just to the world at large, but to individual wars, whatever anybody wants to show us, we have a window to. But we're better equipped to see, but we're not necessarily better equipped to comprehend. Because we weren't, I don't, I've said this before, I don't think we were made to process this much information. And so we're not better equipped to comprehend what we see. And more now than ever before, we need to learn to take a step back from the information in front of us. Take a step back, not run from it or put our head in the sand, act like it's not real, but take a step back and realize that we need time to process what we see and that we might not have the whole story. We might not know everything that's going on. And the first thing we saw might only be one piece of info. It might not even be true info. It's just one idea. We know that at a very visceral level when it comes to human beings. If I meet someone, I get a snapshot of them. Height, weight, skin tone, voice, what they drive, what they wear. I pro- you process all that in real time. Boom, 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 boom. It doesn't mean anything, but it means something. It doesn't tell you what they really are, but it gives you a snapshot upon which you start framing things. Now, you don't let that snapshot determine who they are. You just take it in, right? To determine who they are, you spend some time with them. You have a conversation with them. You sit down with them. You share life with them. You open your heart to them. You watch how they respond. And then you start to form bigger ideas, better ideas. I know more now than just the color of your shirt. I know more now than just the car you drive. I know more now than just the the job you have. I know what makes you tick. I know what makes you mad. I know what makes you laugh. I know what... Just a little more. We, we hang out a little longer, a little longer. This is why we say things like, um, we've known one another long enough, I give you the benefit of the doubt. What's that mean? Well, I have my doubts, but I give you the benefit because we've been down the road long enough that I've learned a few things. I don't just make snap judgments about you. I give you the benefit of the doubt. Why am I giving you the benefit of the doubt? Because I've formulated a little more idea. Now, if we know that at a visceral level, do we know that at a spiritual level? It's almost as if we take all of that maturity, because I wouldn't judge anybody in this room on, well, I hope none of us would judge anyone on anything except our own personal experience with one another. At least that's what you do with people you love or that you care about. It's more than superficial. Why do we then take that maturity level down, way down, when it comes to spiritual judgment? And so then, instead of the benefit of a thousand doubts, it's, I heard what they said, I I know what they believe, I saw that, I got a snapshot of their life, they don't know the Jesus I know, they don't know the Holy Spirit I know, they must not walk in the anointing, they must not be under the favor of God. I've done it my entire Christian life. Snapshots of because they believe that, they must also believe this, because they go there, they must feel this way, because they, they have that belief, they probably have that belief. And I wouldn't do that to them on a personal level, but why would I do that to them on a spiritual level? And so I think it does require a level of spiritual maturity that we all need to grow into to where it isn't about I'm making my judgment calls based on their, the doctrinal differences or what I see here or there, but on something far deeper. Let's start with Paul. One verse. 2 Corinthians 4.18. This is just a placeholder verse. And, and all I mean by that is this literally would just set our title. Get our minds going in the right direction, and then we're going to run over to Jesus. Paul says this, 418, 2 Corinthians, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, which is a little bit of an oxymoron within itself. How can you look at things that aren't seen? It's a play on words. We don't look at what we can look at. We look at what we can't look at. Because the things which are seen are only temporary. The things which are not seen are the things in the eternal realm. So what Paul with the last sentence actually explains what he means. The temporal realm, the temporary realm is the stuff my eyeballs can see that I can emotionally process. The eternal realm is stuff my eyeballs can't see that I don't quickly process. Okay. Take Eugene Peterson's The Message. Same text. 
There's far more here than meets the eye. That is my title because I just I like that thought. It's a, it's a phrase we could use in a lot of different ways. But within the context of this text, this makes a lot of sense because the things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow. The things we can't see now will last forever. Now, take that out of the realm of just heaven and earth and put that in the realm of the spirit in regards to what you see in your neighbor their actions, their responses, their emotions, their lives. What you see is just temporary. What I see out of Jackson is not who Jackson will be tomorrow. What I see out of Jackson is a temporary version of Jackson. Whether he changes anything or not, he's a day older tomorrow. And therefore, he's a different version of himself than he is today. And thus... I'm seeing the temporary. What I don't see is a more eternal version of him, which is him on the inside. That him on the inside isn't static either. The him on the inside is going to get smarter tomorrow, more mature tomorrow, more experienced tomorrow. And if not tomorrow, then next week, next month, next year, the, the unseen is going to grow as well. But, the, but what I, I can't see the unseen I, I don't see his emotion. I don't see his hopes, his dreams. But Paul's telling me I ought to treat them with greater value than I treat the outside. Because the outside is temporary, but the inside is more permanent. We would say it this way in the modern vernacular. You are not what your outside says you are. You are who you are on the inside. The issue is not everybody knows what you are on the inside. And therefore, the judgment call is made on what we see on the outside. This is a tale as old as time. We've been doing this forever. This isn't a new thing. You can't blame this on social media. You can't blame this on the internet or TV or movies. You can't blame it on culture. This is a human thing. Someone walks in the room, we make a judgment call. But there's more than meets the eye. And if we would pay attention from the vantage point of the eternal instead of the vantage point of the temporary, we might have a better chance of making a better determination. Let me read to you a bit of a story. I want to read the whole story eventually. But I want to start by reading a bit of a story from Luke 7, from the, from the ministry of Jesus. Touch of backdrop here, not a lot. Jesus is in the little village of Nain, N-A-I-N. Nain, it, its claim to fame is that's the village in which Jesus, two, two major events happen in the life of Jesus there. One, he goes to a funeral, and as the funeral procession walks past him, Jesus reaches out and touches the, what the old King James calls the beer, the B-I-E-R, the, the elevated casket, almost like a stretcher. You would carry the body through the street on your shoulders. Jesus brushes it with his hand as it comes past and the boy that's on the casket sets up and starts to speak. And that's the, the, one of the three public resurrection miracles, or living, bringing the dead back to life miracles in Jesus' life. And the other incident is where John the Baptist's disciples show up and ask, is he the one? Is Jesus the real Messiah? That happens in Nain. While he is there, he is confronted by a group of Pharisees who accuse him of being what Jesus calls a glutton and a wine-bibber. Remember that famous passage? Which means he eats a lot and he drinks a lot. And I don't know what that means about Jesus' actual public persona, but it's at least public enough that people think he eats with the wrong crowd, maybe he eats too much when he's with them, and he's drinking more wine than he should for a man who's out here doing what he does. This rarely gets thought about or talked about when we talk about Jesus, is the fact that he was called a glutton and a wine And I've even heard us justify that by going, oh, he was called that, but that doesn't mean he did those things. Well, they weren't just picking things out of nowhere. They were taking something Jesus was doing and accusing him of doing it either too much or doing it wrong. When they accused him of healing on the Sabbath, guess what? He was healing on the Sabbath. They just had a problem with it. So when they accuse him of being a glutton and a wine bibber, he's eating and he's drinking but they have a problem with the public perception of what Jesus is doing. And right after that public accusation, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber, which does admittedly have some very deep Jewish undertones to it in the Torah. That's for another sermon. Right after that, he's invited to lunch. 
And he goes into the house of Simon. And I want to pick up reading in Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. This is code in the Bible, by the way. When you read the Gospels, a woman in the city who was a sinner is a public sinner. What's public sinner all about in an ancient world? This is a woman, most likely this is a woman who is known publicly as some form of sex worker. That is, mo we would clean this up and call her a prostitute, okay? But she's a known sinner, whatever that looks like. But that's most of the time the vernacular that's the translation. He went into the house and he sat down to eat and a woman of the city who was a sinner. She knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house and she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Uh, let's put two more verses in there and we'll stop. Stood at his feet behind him weeping and she began to wash his feet with her tears and she wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet and she anointed them with fragrant oil. 39. And when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, Pharisee, this is actually Simon the Pharisee, singular. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke within himself. So he's not saying this out loud. This is a, either a self-mumble or he's thinking it. This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him because she's a sinner. So Simon is offended. He's partially offended that this woman came into his house uninvited but he's trying to be a good host and keep it calm <laughs> but he's just as offended or more offended that Jesus doesn't do anything to stop this woman who is making a spectacle of herself drawing attention to herself by weeping crying to the point of lying at the feet of Jesus and weeping onto his feet and then drying his feet off with her hair and then breaking this box of expensive perfume and ointment and anointing his feet. And I want to get into some of the details, as, as some of the breakdown of what this is, but there's a couple of things here that really sort of jump out at me. Of course, you know, based on my title, you know where we're going and you know this story. And you know that there must be more than meets the eye with this woman because you know how the story ends. But don't miss some of these finer details. And, and, and here's a couple. First of all, we love to point out that Jesus ate with sinners. In fact, just before this, in this chapter, when Jesus is called a glutton and a winebibber, you know what the end of that verse is? He's a glutton and a winebibber and a friend of sinners. And they called him a friend of sinners because he ate with sinners. And if you ate with someone, it meant we're good enough to sit across the table from each other and talk. I'm cool with you. Whose house does he go into here? A Pharisee. We love to say Jesus was a friend of sinners. He loved prostitutes and publicans. Jesus had no problem sitting down with the marginalized. But you want to know who else he had no problem sitting down with? Pharisees. Because there's no one Jesus doesn't love. Not just the pimp and the prostitute, but the pastor and the prophet. Not just the marginalized and the outsider, but the top of the hierarchy. Jesus doesn't approve of any of our actions. He doesn't approve of prostitution any more than he does Phariseeism. But he loves prostitutes and he loves Pharisees because he doesn't have preferential treatment on his love. He'll sit down with all of us. And, and before you think, boy, I don't know if he should hang out with the Pharisees, you ought to be glad he sits down with just anybody because he sits down with you. And he sits down with me. And the fact that he sits down with me doesn't mean he's excited about all of my stupidity because there's a bunch of it. It doesn't mean he's excited about the junk that goes on up here that gets translated into how I talk to people or how I act in front of people. But he loves me and he loves you. And I'll say this, he loves you despite yourself. He loves you in spite of your craziness and your foolishness and the stupid stuff you say, and you do, and the way you act, and the way you treat his kids. Aren't you glad he doesn't get up and walk off the table every time you mistreat one of his kids? Good Lord, we'd never have anybody to eat with. He would never come to our house and eat because he'd go, I saw how you treated my kid this week. I saw how you treated your enemy this week. They, you think they're your enemy, but they're my kid. And 
So thank God Jesus eats with Pharisees. When I read this, I just think if he was only eating with the publicans and the sinners, then he is a man of preferential treatment. He is a respecter of persons. He can be turned off by, by you to the point that he doesn't want anything to do with you. And I don't think that's the case. And so I'm so happy that this story brings together the two sides of society. They're in the same room. And sometimes, and this is important when you, to me, this is important as you grow in the word. Sometimes you need to see yourself as the woman crying at Jesus' feet. Outcast, beaten up, trash talked, put down, hurt, wounded. You need to be there because we're all there every now and then. Some people are there more than others, but we're all there once in a while. And the best thing we can do is just cry at his feet and give him all we got. And so we need to see her in that room. But sometimes... We need to realize we're on the other side of the table and we're religious and we're hyperzealous and we know our Bible and we can quote it front and backwards. And we're a little bit judgmental and we're a little bit hot at people and we got all the theological answers and we want to straighten out the church and we know how to fix ministries and we know how to fix translations and we know how to clean up worlds and we, and, and, and we understand politics and vaccines and, and who to vote for. We got it all nailed. Good news. Whatever side of the table we're on, Jesus is at the table. And so the answer for all of us is not to realize that we're one or the other, but to realize that sometimes we're both. Sometimes we're the Pharisee, and sometimes we're the woman at the feet of Jesus. And what we need to realize is that there's more going on than meets the eye. There's definitely more going on than meets the eye with the woman. Because here's a woman of, that's a sinner. And we told you what that means. That's what the, Simon thinks. You know Jesus knows it. He's not blind to who the woman is. And everybody in the room knows it. But there's more than meets the eye. Because the woman brought in, some have estimated a year's salary in this bottle of perfume. To, to sacrifice it at the feet of Jesus, who humbles herself publicly. There's more than meets the eye. There's more than meets the eye with that Pharisee who looks like he's got everything going right. But we see behind the curtain a little bit. The scripture lets us peek into his mind, into his heart. He doesn't say it out loud, but we get to read his thoughts. Oh, if he only knew who this woman was. There's more than meets the eye. That's, that, that, that's what's going on. So if Jesus eats with the Pharisee and Luke to my knowledge in the synoptics is exclusive, but telling us Jesus eats with the Pharisee. And he does it three times in a span of just a few chapters. So Luke's trying to get a message across that Jesus sat down with these people, which means he loves them and there's more than meets the eye with what's going on there. The other thing is found in that 39th verse inside of the Pharisee, in his mind, in his heart somewhere. He says, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is. So Simon has the idea that if Jesus were everything he said he is, he would not be allowing this woman to do what she does because Simon's idea of a prophet is a man who has no quarter for sin or sinners. A true prophet is someone who calls out sin. A true prophet is someone who exposes people in their failure. That's Simon's thought. Jesus can't be a true prophet because a true prophet wouldn't put up with this. Simon the Pharisee sounds a lot like I felt for a long time about real men of God, real anointed ministry, and real prophets. Real men of God and real anointed ministry have no quarter for sin. They will call out sin from the pulpit to the pew. They will expose people's failure so that they can be healed beneath the blood of Jesus. Real prophets will call America to task. Real prophets will call politics to task and the medical community to task and the entertainment industry to task. Real prophets will prophesy about the doom that is to come and what will happen if we will clean it up? That's exactly what the Pharisee thinks about Jesus. If this guy were real, here's what he would do. And I, what it tells me is that we've never really understood the role of the prophet from God's point of view. 
Now, let me think about it. In the Old Testament, the prophet's role in the Old Testament was essentially to call Israel back to covenant. Whatever covenant they were under, he reminded them of it. Get back to this. So here comes the greatest prophet of them all, the one that literally Moses said, the prophet will come. That's Jesus. Here comes the greatest prophet. And what does Jesus do when he is confronted with sin? He doesn't laugh at it. He doesn't say sin's not a big deal. He doesn't act as if it won't hurt you, wound you, destroy you. But he embraces it. He holds it. He pulls it close to his heart so that he can take it into himself and that he can die as sin at Calvary so that he can be the antidote, so that he can be the healer. The ultimate prophet faces adulterers, prostitutes, publicans, Pharisees. And what he does is pours the love of his father in, confronts sinners and their sin, not by showing them the end game of death, but by pouring into them the gift of forgiveness and no condemnation. And what Jesus is doing is showing you what a prophet really looks like. He's showing you the role of the gospel and what the gospel is all about, what the gospel is supposed to do. Look at Revelation 19.10. This is at the end of the Bible. And right before, we only have 22 chapters in Revelation. You're right near the end of the passage. And John falls at the feet of the man who has been revealing these great things to him. And I fell at his feet to worship, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. So the man he's bowing in front of is not Jesus and doesn't want worship because only Christ deserves the worship. I'm your fellow servant, your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Watch this last sentence. This last sentence. If we ignore this, we don't understand prophecy. To me, this is the Bible's definition. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So a man or a woman who calls himself a prophet or a prophetess who does not testify of Jesus is not a prophet. They might be led by a familiar spirit, but they're not a prophet. Because the revelatory example of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The prophet must testify of Jesus. What Jesus did, what Jesus is doing, what Jesus ever shall do. He who was, he who is, he who is to come. The prophet will point to a finished work. The prophet will accelerate Christ. Simon can't understand new covenant prophets. He's not a man of the new covenant. But he does have a mentality in which prophets ought to be rejecting this woman. Jesus ought to kick her when she touches his feet. You don't put up with a woman that has this kind of lifestyle and call yourself a prophet. But Jesus is trying to introduce you to what a prophet is supposed to be. Kind of what Paul did in 1 Corinthians 14 when he said this. Let he who prophesies, look what prophecy is. Prophecy speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. That's the three-pronged effect of the prophet. How many of you sat in prophetic ministries or heard the voice of the prophet? Didn't have the testimony of Jesus. Did not edify, did not exhort, did not comfort. In fact, that last one was considered non-prophetic. If you comforted people, you couldn't be a prophet. Because they'd say things like, prophecy ain't supposed to make you comfortable. Prophecy ain't supposed to bring you any comfort. Go, I don't know what Bible we're reading, but the reality is, is that prophecy only knows how to comfort. Why? Because it only knows how to testify of Jesus. It only knows how to show us Christ in Him crucified, Christ in Him resurrected, Christ in Him ascended, Christ in Him coming again. And in that, we are exhorted, and we are edified, and we are built up, and we are comforted. And so when Simon the Pharisee looks across the table and sees Jesus, he goes, this guy were a prophet. He sounds like a lot of us. If you were really listening to God, you'd be doing this, you'd be doing that, you'd be hammering. I've, I've had the accusations. You know, if you were really... You were really hearing from the Lord, you'd be hammering away at this sin and that sin or that sin and this sin. And boy, that used to bother me. I was to the point that when I really started preaching grace and the finished work, um, I, I spent a lot of time trying to qualify, always trying to qualify, qualify, qualify everything, answer every question, go down this road and that road, this verse and that verse. Because you were always scared of the accusation you wouldn't take sin serious. And the, the more that I grow in, 
in grace and who Jesus is, I don't know that I've ever taken sin this serious. Um, and what I mean by that is I don't think about sin in terms of what it's going to do to me eternally. But I do think about it in terms of what it's going to do to me. And now that I know Jesus and his love for me, the last thing I want to do is run into the chaos of failure. Knowing he has brought me out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. Now, you can't get that through to people by just saying that. That has to be experienced. But what I have started to do is I'm not going to back down from what I believe the Bible says about what true prophecy is. If you come in and sit to hear the word, I have an obligation to testify of Jesus or I need to stop calling myself a prophet of God. So I either have to testify of who Jesus is and in that edify you, exhort you, and comfort you. So build you up give you the equipment you need to face the world and comfort your soul. And that's what the gospel ought to do. And where it's failing to do that, it's failing to put the spotlight and the testimony on Jesus. So if we have to navigate all the other stuff that we're hearing through our ears, seeing with our eyes on the news, if we have to come into church and navigate all that, geopolitics and presidents and and vaccines and viruses and we have to navigate it so that we land in the right spot with our foot politically we're not testifying of jesus because jesus confronts how we deal with our enemies and he confronts how we deal with our with our violence and he confronts how we love and he confronts how we treat the poor and he never stops confronting it that's the testimony of jesus and it edifies me, and it exhorts me, and it comforts me. And only whenever we push back against the testimony of Jesus does it stop doing that. So the reason why we'll leave not comforted is if we wanted to have our emotions stoked on this subject. But then you saw Jesus, and Jesus is confronting you about how you treat the poor. And you go, ah, I'd rather hear, I want to hear about what we should do over here. And you go, oh, I thought I was supposed to be comforted. Yes, if, if you listen to the testimony of Jesus. That's where the comfort is. Where, where there's a lack of comfort, it's when we're pushing against the testimony of Jesus. And his exhortation, and his edification. And Simon gets ticked off. Setting in the same room with the Son of God. How do you pull that off? How can you sit in the same room with the Son of God and leave angry? Because what Simon brought to the table was a judgment based on what he saw and what he wanted to hear. And there was more going on than meets the eye. And so when confronted with what's going on behind the scenes and what is going on behind the scenes, let's read it. Luke 7.40 Jesus answers and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And so he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. Jesus tells a story. He's a great storyteller. And it's such a simple little story. Don't beat it up trying to figure out all the details. This is how we mess up Jesus' stories. Because we just work the details until we take all the power out of it. Just listen to the simplicity of this story. There was a certain creditor had two debtors. One guy owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50. A denarii was a day's wages in the Roman Empire. So one guy owed him a year and a half salary, and the other owed him about two months worth. They're both pretty significant, but the first one's really bad. So just take your salary, add 50% to it. That's how much you owe the dude, all right? The other one you could pay off in, say, 90 days, 50 days, month and a half, month and a half. The other you pay off a year and a half. They're both big, but one's obviously bigger. All right, that's all the detail you need, 42. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. You see how simple this story is? A little kid would get this answer right. I mean, if you said you owe a bunch and you owe a little bit, but neither one of you owe anymore, who's the happiest? Well, the guy that owed a whole bunch, right? He's the happiest. I, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Look at that. You've rightly judged. Of course the guy that owes more is going to love him more because he owed more. 44. He turned to the woman and he said to Simon, look at this move. He turned to the woman. 
but he spoke to Simon. So he's acknowledging her. She's the center of the story. But I'm going to speak to you because you and you are the one who needs to hear what's going on with this. So he turns to the woman, but he talks to Simon. Simon, do you see this one? This makes me think Jesus physically acknowledges her. This isn't just a pointing. This is Jesus. Maybe he brings her up to her feet. Maybe he sits her right next to him. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That was a common practice, by the way. In a world with no cars and you ride donkeys and chariots and they go to the bathroom in the street and the rain and the waste, there's junk on your feet all day long. You walk into someone's house, the, the most courteous, simplest thing you can do is have a basin of water next to the door so that they can wash their feet. Jesus goes, you didn't give me a basin of water to wash my feet. So this woman's been washing my feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. Can you imagine how humiliating it is to dry someone's feet off with your hair? And, and Jesus is not making fun of her. This is what a moment this is in this room. The room goes dead quiet when Jesus starts to tell this story. And he goes, this woman hasn't stopped crying over my feet. And she's drying her feet, my feet with her hair. Next verse. You gave me no kiss. This woman hasn't ceased to not kiss my face. She's kissed my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Why does Jesus point out anointing the head with oil? Because they would anoint the head because when you're face to face with someone, nose to nose with someone in a world full of bad smells, you anointed your upper body in the old world so that the anointing would fall down so that when you met someone, what you would smell was the anointing oil on them, not the filth of the street. So you didn't put the oil, it was expensive. You put it near the nose. Jesus says, you didn't do that, but this woman has taken this anointing oil and anointed my feet, which no one would bother to do because it's expensive to anoint. So you don't waste it on feet. You put it on the head. And Jesus says, this, why, why, why is this being pointed out? This is where this woman thinks she belongs. She walked into this house and she hasn't gotten up. She's been on her face at my feet the whole time because the atmosphere that's been created in this room is that this is where she belongs. Underneath someone's foot. That's how her whole life has been. Underneath someone's foot. Underneath someone's foot sexually. Underneath someone's foot socially underneath someone's foot financially, underneath someone's foot domestically. And you know how she's figured out how to get out from under the foot? Weep her way out of it, cry her way out of it, anoint the feet. She's found the right foot. She's been looking. This is Jesus. This is the liberating moment of this woman and the indicting moment of Simon across the table. This woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. 47. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Look at this. So this woman who has a lot of sins and they're obvious, you know she's a sinner. Her sins are forgiven. And why did I tell you that story a moment ago about a guy that owed 500 denarii and a guy that owed 50 denarii? Which one of you, Simon, which one of you in this room do you think owes 500? You or her? Obvious, right? Which one of you owes 50? Obvious. So, which one would love more? Her or you? Do you realize the indictment on Simon is... You didn't love me at all. You didn't kiss me. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't do anything. So maybe you don't think much of me. And maybe you're acknowledging I haven't done anything for you. And because I haven't done anything for you, you don't do anything for me. But this woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet and washing them with her tears and drying them with her hair and putting anointing oil on my feet because this woman has had something miraculous happen inside of her. And then he says, therefore, your sins are forgiven. 49.50. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man that even can forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. What a moment for that woman. Jesus says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. You, everything you brought in was war. 
Go in peace. Take it with you. Now, I want to show you something in the NRSV. Because the cleanup translation a little bit in 47 kind of helps us to see something that I think is easily missed. I've missed it for a long time in this text. Watch this. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. Time out. Just look at that again. Her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. That's why she has shown great love. Simple. But watch. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Here's my question. Was she already forgiven of her sins in 47? Or was she not forgiven of her sins until 48? Because according to 47, she was doing this because her sins were forgiven. So why does he bother in 48 to tell her, your sins are forgiven? This is why this sermon was born, because there's more than meets the eye. She's already forgiven. It just took Jesus saying it out loud in 48 for Simon to get it. Because according to 47, look, her sins, which were many, have already been forgiven. That's why she has shown great love, because the one to whom's been forgiven much loves much. Do you know why she's doing this? Because she's grateful. But I'm going to say it out loud so you know it. Listen, there's more than meets the eye that's what's going on in people's lives. We think we've got people figured out. We have no idea what God's doing behind the scenes in people's lives. Simon watches a prostitute walk in, wash Jesus' feet with her hair. He wonders why Jesus is such a poor prophet that he don't know the difference. And Jesus then turns it on him. If you knew how forgiven you were, Simon, maybe you would have kissed me. Maybe you would have anointed me. Maybe you would have washed my feet. Want to know what this woman has on you in spades? The ability to know how forgiven she is. And so publicly I say, you are forgiven. What an amazing, amazing moment this was for this woman. But you know what? If I'm honest, what an amazing moment it is for me. I just, it's, it's amazing because I have been Simon so many times at the table. And... I figure I got everybody figured out sometimes. You know, like I know what their spiritual issue is. I know what, based on what they're doing, probably where they are on the journey. Truth is, is there's more than meets the eye. I don't know anything about you. I think it's why we end up, you know where we opened today in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says there's more than meets the eye? When you get into the next chapter, and remember, Paul didn't break this into chapters. Paul's just writing. Paul keeps writing. And you get into the 5th chapter, 16th verse, 17 verses after where we open, Paul goes, we judge no one according to the flesh. And he goes, the reason we judge no one according to the flesh is because we have decided, we have determined that if one man died, everybody died. When Christ died, everybody died in Christ. Therefore, I don't judge anybody according to the flesh. He's taking his own advice. There's more than meets the eye. So I don't judge you according to the flesh. Because I don't know. I don't know everything that's going on in you. What I do know is that you're loved. And here's what I think would happen. If you knew how forgiven you are, you would love much in return. If we want to see the world become the people we think they should be, we need to stop getting people, trying to get people to change and start getting people to comprehend how forgiven they are because of what Christ has done. Because if they knew how forgiven they were, they'd live like it. I, I believe that. I, I'm, I'm naive enough to believe that with all of my heart. And I tell you, if I didn't have any other reason, I'd have Luke 7. Prostitute walks into the presence of Jesus and cries her eyes out at his feet. And Jesus says, if you knew how forgiven you were, you would have washed my feet. But you don't know how forgiven you are. She knows how forgiven she is. And just so you know, I know, here's her public forgiveness. People aren't walking into public forgiveness. Part of the reason is we don't let them because we've got a messed up idea of prophecy and power and anointing. Why in the world would they come to church? They know when they get there, all they're going to do is get browbeat, beat up, made fun of, knocked down, pushed out, and shut up, and, and twisted and changed and ignored. I'm not me. I don't, of course we don't mean everywhere for all time, but we all know we've been there and we've seen it. 
But if they knew how forgiven they were because of Jesus, what might happen? This is our only hope to see the world transform is to let people know how forgiven they are. You do not know what is happening behind the scenes. One other Jesus example, remember him and his disciples were standing at the temple watching people give money. And wealthy people would walk by and drop great amounts into the basket. And a little poor woman walked by and dropped a couple pennies in. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, she has outgiven everyone. And no one would have understood what that means. How she outgiven everybody? What'd you give, 10 cents? And Jesus said, because she gave out of her heart. She gave out of her want. They gave out of what was left over. Sure, what was left over for them was a lot of money. But she outgave them because there's more going on than meets the eye. What you don't know is what people are going through. So here's what you don't know. is what I don't know. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't know what's happening at your house, what's happening in your wallet, what's happening in your body. I don't know what's happening in your mind. I don't know what's robbing your sleep at night. I don't know what scares you. I don't know what shakes you. I don't know what stresses you. What I do know is God loves you. Great price has been paid for you. And then in the eyes of God, you are forgiven. And a new man is on the earth. And if I could get you to believe that, all of that other stuff would not become irrelevant, but all of that other stuff would have hope and a remedy attached. You are more than meets the eye. Oh, you can take that to the next level and go, you're more than you realize. You have greater potential than you realize. You have great, of course, sure. But with our story, I know I'm going to be on one side of the table or the other most of the time. I'm going to be Simon or I'm going to be the woman. I just want to remember that there's more going on than you know and there's more going on than I know. Now in the world today, a lot happening. More going on than you know. More going on than I know. If you can remind yourself of that, we might be a little less quick to give our two cents that's relatively uninformed based almost entirely on our emotions and the last piece of information we heard, which could be as wrong as the thing we're commenting on. It's not as if we all have to shut up, that we don't have an opinion or that it doesn't matter. It's that there's more going on than we know. And in that, we need to learn to do what this woman did. Trust the Jesus that knows what no one else in the room knows. And when we do that, that's our best shot. That's our only hope for a fallen world. May we take that. May we use it in a world that so badly needs Jesus. And when I say so badly needs Jesus, I'm not just talking about in the old revival sense of the word. One, I, boy, if we could just get everybody in here to get, come up forward and accept Jesus as their savior. I mean, they need the Jesus that looks at them and says, you are forgiven. Because if they just knew what he thought of them, a great first step could be taken towards the rest of their lives. Our role maybe is to let the people in our lives know that. And the first thing we have to do is realize there's more there than meets the eye. When we know that, then we know we can release forgiveness into their lives. Let's ask the Father to help us in this, all right? Let's ask the Father to show us how to do this. I don't mean just us collectively. Ask the Father to show you how to do this in you, okay? What areas is there more than meets the eye that I've been a little quick and I need to stop and listen. What areas, Father? And be ready. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's going to be what Jesus shows in our lives. And then how to fix that. That's our journey. That's our repentance. Constant mind change. Let's pray that. Father, I thank you for this word. And I thank you for every person here and the untold people that will view or listen to this who will be impacted by the idea that there is literally things going on that we cannot know about. Not just on the global scene or the political scene or the medical scene, but on the neighbor scene. Just across the table from us, there's more going on than meets the eye. If we learn that, we'll be less quick to judge. We'll be more open to love. And if we could learn to teach, to tell the world around us, about the forgiveness of God, then maybe we would see the world we envision could happen. I ask you to show me the areas 
in which there's more than meets the eye. That I've been so quick to get my ideas and my thoughts and my opinions, but there's more than meets the eye. Teach me how to slow down and pay attention to what needs to be paid attention to. And in that, Father, show me how to do that, not just on a broad basis, but on a personal basis. Who in my life have I been quick that I didn't realize there was more than meets the eye? And as I'm sensitive to the sound of your voice, maybe I'll learn that they just need loved, that they need hope, they need help. Maybe they just need someone to listen. They don't even need my advice. They just need my ear. Teach me when that is. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says to her, your faith has done it. Go in peace. Where did her faith start? You know, I think, it's the, I, I think it's in the market when she's buying that ointment. And she goes, Jesus is in town. I'm going to spend every dime I have on this ointment. And when she does that, it's like, man, your faith has met the moment. She walks in the room. Jesus spots her as forgiven. I, I had never really examined. I mean, I've made this statement in regards to this text a lot. I've said like, uh, the woman knew she was forgiven. That's why she loved so much. But I never put it together that her public forgiveness was not for her. It was for the rest of the room. It feels a little bit like the man that lowered through the roof. You know, and Jesus sees their faith. And he says, son, take up your beds and walk. Your sins be forgiven you. No, son, your sins are forgiven you. And then they go, oh, you can't forgive sins. Who's this? And Jesus goes, I only said that out loud so you'd know I have the power to forgive sins. I'll tell him, stand up and walk. Boom, stand up and walk. And, you know, it's like, I, I don't have to tell you anything. I'm going to tell you out loud so you'll know. And I kind of feel that way in Luke 7. Like, oh, I don't have to let you know, Simon. This woman and I, we got our own thing going here. She, she's worshiping me. I don't need to include you, but I'm going to because I want to teach you a lesson. And, and in some ways, it just shows you how much he loves the Pharisee too, that he won't just let it rest and go, eh. I want to love the Pharisee the way I love the woman. Because I love the woman. I had the same question. When did she comprehend that? I know. Yeah. Well, about as much as the woman caught in the act of adultery did, right? Where are your accusers? And she goes, oh, and there are none. He goes, oh, well, neither do I condemn you. She didn't say, please forgive me. I confess my sins. I want to serve the God of Israel. It was just like, I don't know. There's nobody here to kill me. And he goes, well, neither am I. Go, go sin no more. You go, wow, we're making it. We're ma maybe we're making it awfully hard on people to receive. Maybe the fact that they showed up was a pretty big thing and listened. You know, we want them to jump through the hoops and, you know, sign up for the baptistry. Maybe we all just love them a little bit. Maybe, you know, they're in the right room. They're, they're hearing about Jesus. Let's just keep that ball rolling, you know, see, what, see where that takes us. Yeah. Good thoughts. May have to find a way to, to uh, fade that in, that, that right there that we just talked about. Put that in on the back side of that message. It's still recording. Because that's, that's vital. I, I mean, I'm not trying to put your voices in there. I'm just saying, I think it's vital that we, we land on that, get the, the hearer thinking, oh, maybe, maybe the moment her faith encounters Jesus. It doesn't encounter Jesus when she walks in the room. Her faith's already happened before she walks in the room. That's why she brings the ointment in. That's why she walks in ready to cry at his feet. Because I found Jesus is in town. Let's go. What a moment. Yeah. yeah.